0: As you would prefer, would you please turn in your Bibles or your bulletins with me to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read this passage for us in just a moment. Uh, If you have been with us this summer for the past couple of weeks or not, we're in the middle of a summer series that is called Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body, and we're kind of walking through an unfolding of how Scripture presents to us literally our bodies, physically our bodies. What are we to do with these bodies? In sermon number one, we considered this theme very good, and we saw that we were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. In the second sermon, we asked the question, what is man? Of course, we asked that question along with scripture itself in Psalm 8. What is man? How are we made? How are we constituted to be image bearers of God? What is that mean for us. And in sermon number three, we ask the question, what's a body to do? What are you supposed to do with the bodies that God has given to us, that he has made for us? And as I've just admitted in this time of baptism, the perspective that we took was generally speaking a creational perspective or passages that were reflecting on creation to try and understand that. So these are passages from Genesis 1 and 2 uh, or Psalm 8 or places like that to say, okay, if we can understand God's original intention for us, then we've got a good start on answering those questions and in terms of who we are and what we are supposed to be. In addition to that, we also recognize that the perfection of image-bearing is found in the incarnation, in the person in the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only can we look at the beginning to try to understand what it means to be a follower of God, an imitator of God, as we saw last week, but we can also look at Jesus himself, whom when we see, we see the Father himself. All of that helps to inform us about who we are. But what we hadn't gotten to yet, and what we now arrive at today, is the fall of humanity into sin and what impact that has uh, on the body itself and on body life, what we do with our bodies. We're going to spend two weeks on this. This week, we're going to look at something of the, the impact of sin on our bodies. And then next week, We're going to look at the expression of sin as as we ate of that tree, as we took that down into ourselves. Sin wove its way into us and now is expressed through our bodies. So we'll look at that part next week, impact this week. So this is the word of God, a passage that you probably know well, beginning at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust to dust. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at a text that is in many ways familiar to us, to help us to understand the impact of sin on our bodies. In so doing, Jesus, we thank you for the gift of yourself that you have given for us, and we pray that you would help us to see the remarkable, remarkable redemption that we have in you as a result. Be with us today as we look at this in your name. Amen. Amen. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are dreadful words. They're words of finality, words of vanity, words that speak of emptiness because things go back to the way they were. They're words spoken regarding both the consequences of sinful disobedience, death, and the judgment of God upon that disobedience. Now, I suppose that there are some who would like to take those words, dust to dust, just to use the phrase that all of us are familiar with. They'd they'd like to take those words and somehow soften them or moderate them or somehow mitigate what they're actually saying by suggesting an idea that really simply what we have here is a statement about the circle of life that all of these things are organically related to one another, and we come from the earth and we shall return to the earth and others shall come to the earth and everything's okay because this is just part of the circle that goes around. That would be to miss the point of what is being said here. These words represent an undoing, an unmaking ...of that which had been made. The glorious, honored image-bearer was made, formed, and fashioned from the dust. And, and, And he was animated by the breath of God giving life to him. So to be condemned to return to the dust is a dismantling. To use the biblical analogy that pops up a few times... It is the potter saying, I've got no more use for this. this. This goes back to the scrap pile because I've got no more use for this thing that was made. It's a rejection. Uh, dust is associated with abasement and with humiliation, right? If you look earlier in the passage that I read for us or in verse 14, the serpent is condemned... To be in the dust, to crawl on the belly, and to eat the dust. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, sometimes we would say, eat my dust. If you were in a race and you expected to beat that person, or you were in front of that person, you said, eat my dust. Eat when I'm kicking up behind me. You are defeated. Solomon understood the words dust to dust to have this kind of meaning. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Solomon writes this. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast's For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Now, that's not Solomon's last word on the matter, that's not Scripture's last word on the matter. But Solomon understands what is said here, he gets the idea of what is said here, and he allows those words, if you will, or he takes those words and grabs us, or takes the words themselves and grabs them by the scruff of the neck, and turns us to face that reality, and says, you're dust, and you're going to return to dust, now deal with that. What have you got to say about that? Say what you will about other things, you're dust, and you're going back to dust. And so what we see then in Genesis chapter 3 is this once honored, embodied image has now fallen. So what do you want to call it? We could say it's now a marred image, a spoiled image, a stained image, a distorted image, an image that is curved in upon itself. Uh, It's an image in a carnival funhouse. Somewhat hideous, somewhat grotesque from its original design and its original intent. In the fall of our first parents, we, with them, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We sought out every evil scheme so that the judgment that we read of in Romans chapter 3, the verdict, the assessment, the conclusion that we read about, that Jack read for us in Romans chapter 3, is just. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and, and if you looked at Romans chapter 3, I'm sure you weren't paying attention to this as we read it, it goes right through the body. The throat is an open grave. The tongue is used to deceive. The venom of asp is under the lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The feet are swift to shed blood blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. All of it, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The assessment all the way through the Bible to Romans chapter 3 that we read is the exact same at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The fall into sin results in the image bearer being brought into the estate of sin and misery. And to be in the estate of misery is to say that we are subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself into the pains of hell forever. In the estate of sin and misery, in body and soul, not just one, not just the other, in body and in soul. The first sin that was committed was a sin of the body, Now, in saying it's a sin of the body, I don't mean to deny that that indeed there was a thought process that was marred and sinful and distorted that was going on and going into this decision to eat of this fruit as well. This was the birth of that idea that we see in Genesis 6, wherein the thoughts and the intentions of the heart are evil. But in its execution, when it was actually done, it was a bodily sin that was, in fact committed here. The internal conflict that was there for Eve and then for Adam came into fruition. It became a sin bodily committed with their ears. They listened to the words of the serpent with their eyes. They looked at the fruit of that tree and they saw that that fruit looked good. And with their hands, they reached out and took of the fruit of that tree. And as they brought it closer, no doubt it smelled delicious. And with their mouths, they ate of the fruit of that tree. And they chewed it. And they swallowed it. And they took it down. They took rebellion down into their very beings. They ate it. They swallowed it. That which was forbidden. And so... They became partakers, partakers of it, participants in it, united with it. They took it in to every fiber of their being. They will be independent of God instead of dependent. Remember, we saw a couple of weeks ago that one of the things we can say about being an embodied image bearer is that as soon as you are an embodied image bearer, you are by definition dependent. And they say, no, 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 thank you very much. Thank you very much. Sin is an assertion of autonomy, writes one author. It is the idea that, no, 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 I will be self-made, I will be self-providing, I will decide, I will be self-governing. I will decide what I want to do, I will decide what is best for me, I will decide what I want to eat when I want to eat it. They will seek to be like God, as God. Did you catch that there in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan says to them, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God or as God. Well, what's the irony of that? They already are, right? They already are. They've already been made after the image and after the likeness of God. Satan is selling them a bill of goods that they've actually already got, And the impact of this defiance on the body is immediate. The consequences of the fall are seen not only in the soul, and they certainly are, they're seen and they are experienced in the body. Biblically speaking, then, it is not surprising that so many of us struggle with body image issues, with common things like uh, our weight, I'm too heavy, I'm too skinny, with our shape, I would rather have more here or less there, with the size of our nose, with the skin color, with our complexions, with wrinkles, with blemishes, with double chins, it's not surprising. But there are complicated issues of body dysphoria wherein people become obsessed with actual or perceived flaws that may be in their bodies. It's not surprising that there are issues of gender dysphoria. We sometimes are dismayed by them, but it's not surprising. It's not surprising that some people make idols of their bodies, that some people will spend extraordinary amounts of time and money trying to get their bodies in the absolute perfect shape. As if, in so doing, they will, in fact, avoid dust to dust. It's not surprising that other people would give up the ghost on that and say, listen, forget it. I'm not going to be like that person over there. I'm not going to care about my health at all, and I'm just going to do whatever, lay around. It's not surprising that fixing these complicated issues is never as simple as simply saying to someone, listen, you should eat this and not that. Or you shouldn't worry about how you look. No one's even going to notice the thing that you're so obsessed with, that you are so focused on. Or it's not as simple as just saying to someone who's doing something harmful to their body to say, listen, stop doing that bad thing to your body and start doing this. This is a good thing. Do this to your body. It is not surprising because the body is a battlefield, where in this life, the battered image of original honor and beauty is being daily ravaged by the consequences that come out of Genesis chapter 3. And looming, as if it weren't enough that we struggle in life with our bodies, looming Over our present concern with our bodies is the undeniable, unavoidable, inevitable specter of death. Dust to dust is what will happen to us. And you don't even need the Bible to tell you that. You just need to go to a funeral. You just need to go to a cemetery to know that that is the reality. When our first parents sinned, and we and them by original sin. Our bodies took a direct hit. It was a fatal, self-inflicted blow. Satan, in his vile hatred of everything that is good, in his vile hatred of the living God and the living one who bore the image of the living God, Satan promised, you will not surely die. That's what he said you will not die. In the day you eat of this, you will not surely die. He was a liar. He was a liar from the beginning and look at the results that come from it. Look at the text. Look what's in there that comes immediately from this. Immediately is introduced into humanity bodily shame. Right? They were ashamed. And it is expressed immediately in Their bodies, the anxiety, the fears that will dominate humanity for millennia and all of our existence, they rush in at this place and it results in the covering of the body and the hiding of the body, right? That's what it says in Adam trying to explain it in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Some words that we love from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are, do not be anxious about your bodies. Well, he's speaking that because he knows everybody's anxious about their bodies. Everybody's anxious about it. Everybody's anxious about what we will eat and what we will wear. In our shame, we isolate. We lose the sweet communion that characterized humanity prior to the fall. Communion was one of those things that is part and parcel of being created an embodied image-bearer. And now, they're physically hiding from God, they're physically hiding from one another, and they're separating from the creation as well. Anxiety about your body and its care is universal and it is crippling and it has its roots right here in Genesis chapter 3. And as you move through the text, the next thing we see is is not just that shame comes into the world, but pain comes into the world as well. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then to Adam in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it. Pain is introduced. And it is introduced into the most wonderful or at least the most foundational aspect of our lives. What is more basic, what is more foundational than bringing children into the world and eating? Those are baseline type of activities that God has, that God has given to us, and now they will be characterized by pain, a word that can be translated grief and sorrow as well. This is, of course, not restricted in any way to these two activities, but the pain is throughout our lives. One of our hymns says it this way, speaks this way, if thou but suffer, God to guide thee is the hymn. It speaks of these never-ceasing moans and sighs, these dark moments, the cross and the trials. And if we look at the psalms, the psalmist cries, the psalmist groans, the psalmist faints, and the psalmist says, For all of us, I moan. Did you catch this in the call to worship this morning? Let my cry come to you in the day of my distress. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning, and my bones cling to my flesh. We get hurt, we get sick. We get older and we get more and more fragile and we moan more and more. Maybe there's a short span of your life, some of you are right in the sweet spot, kinda, I don't know, I don't know what it is, this is not scientific, maybe it's between 20 and 40. When the moaning of your life is at its lowest ebb, it will come. The moaning will come, the pain will increase, it won't go away, you've got a short window And then the pain will be introduced and will come back into your life. Pain in your body is universal, it is crippling, and it has its roots right here. So there's shame and then there's pain. And before the final nail in the coffin, and just to be clear, the final nail in the coffin is death itself dust to dust, before the final nail in the coffin, we see in the words to Adam that life will be characterized by a toilsome labor. The ground has been cursed and no longer will it yield willingly to the God-given mission of cultivation. Instead, the earth is now subjected to futility. It is Under bondage, it is under decay and corruption, and the earth groans. It will resist our efforts to cultivate it, and we will sweat. And there will be futility, and there will be struggle, and there will be weariness. So Moses writes this Psalm 90 The years of our life are 70 or 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That's, that's Genesis chapter 3, Moses reflecting on it in Psalm language. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, again to listen to Solomon the sage consider these things. In Ecclesiastes 2, he writes this, "'What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun?' For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Solomon looks at it straight up and says, listen, it's vanity. It's toilsome, it's laborious, and it is wearying to us. And there's a general lack of satisfaction and contentment that goes along with that as well. Again, Ecclesiastes, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Your body won't be satisfied. And to take one more look at that, chapter 6, verse 7 of Ecclesiastes, all the toil of man is for his mouth. All the toil that you're doing is for something good to eat and for trying to find some satisfaction in that, and yet, continuing, his appetite is not satisfied. All the toil is for your mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. The body, as Paul says, can be compared to a jar of clay that is wasting away, and I'm not even going into today, all of the physical and mental and emotional and abuse issues and disability issues that are out there. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, very good, and yet we are now, after the fall, embattled image bearers. And there will come a time when we, we will return to the dust from which we were taken. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And God was telling the truth. The liar said, you will not surely die. The truth teller said, you'll die in that day. Now, if you want to see the impact of sin on the human body, on the image-bearing human body, if you want to see it in a compact, concentrated form, distilled to its very essence, Then, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the suffering. Look at what he endured. Look at his body stretched out on the cross. Look at the fact that he's then taken down and buried into the ground. That shows us the impact of sin on the body. His body broken for yours. Now, I was preparing this sermon today, and I got to thinking about, obviously, the body, and that got me to thinking about health care, and it got me to thinking about how many of us, how many of you are engaged directly in the work, the profession of health care. You want to know how many it is? I didn't actually pull out the directory. 20 plus. 20 plus of you are professionally engaged in health care, from nurses, to doctors, to therapists, to pharmacists, uh, to all of you who are in the pharmaceutical industry. And besides, there's 20 of you who basically have jobs because of Genesis 3. You're trying to mitigate. You're trying to mitigate and take care of as best you can the shame and the pain and the toil that takes place in this world, and yet it's all gonna end in dust. It's going to come down to dust. From dust we were taken, and to dust we will return. And by the way, that 20 doesn't count all of the parents who are busy trying to take care of little bodies and all of the things that happen to little bodies in this world. Our bodies are trying to tell us something. Our bodies are trying to tell us something about ourselves, about our world, and about our God, Our bodies are trying to tell us that while there's a part of us, the image-bearing part of us that remains, that can taste, that can almost grasp the idea that there is something out there wherein the body finds sweet perfection, sweet harmony with everything that's around it, where we can almost taste the joy that would be there for the body had the fall not taken place. The body says to us every day, all is not well. All is not well. This is a good time for a good, famous C.S. Lewis quote. Pain insists on being attended to. You can't ignore it. Pain insists on being attended to. And again, Lewis, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I would say if pain is God's megaphone, then death is a rock concert set of speakers warning us of danger approaching begging us, begging us to look outside of ourselves. Because if you try and take care of it yourselves, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, it all ends in dust. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work out, no matter what cosmetic line you are wearing, no matter how much sunscreen you apply, it all wears out. Psalm 39.4 says this, O oh Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. That's the prayer of the psalmist. Lord, let me remember dust to dust. I have to remember that in order to look for help. To look for help, as the psalmist continue, continues, it seems futile to him, Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a breath. And he gets to this point where he says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. He's got to get outside of himself because he can't deliver himself out of dust to dust. So he says, my hope is in you. And that takes us to look for another one, right? Now, This way, this sermon series looks and and the way it's structured. I have to preach the good news to us for just a moment, but I'm only going to do it a sliver because we're going to come to it in ones to come. We have to look for one who bore in his body the pain, the shame, the toil, and even the death, one who was buried, but whose body did not decay did actually not turn into dust. One who takes that phrase, dust to dust, and interrupts it right at the very end. And then swallows up death. Instead of death swallowing him, he swallows up death. He looses the pangs of death by the sacrifice of his body for Ours. More about that Jesus in other sermons. For now, we consider just the impact of sin on our bodies. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to consider our days, to know our end and what is the measure of our days, so that we look to you for help, so that we look to you for hope, so that in Jesus we find the one who is life and life indeed. In your name we pray, amen.